0: book podcast our international podcast series bridging the divide translation and the art of empathy showcases a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the uk by 10 leading independent houses and a special guest this interview is being recorded via zoom during the covid 19 lockdown i'll now hand over to my co-podcast host lucy popescu
1: I'm delighted to interview Natasha Lera, who translated Nathalie Leger's latest novel, The White Dress, published by Le Fugitif on 31st of March. In March 2008, Pippa Bacca, a 33-year-old Italian feminist artist, decided to hitchhike from Milan to Jerusalem wearing a white wedding dress. Her aim was to promote world peace, and she intended to document her experiences by video. However, on the 31st of March, Pippa was picked up in Turkey, raped and strangled. Leger meditates on Baker's fatal journey and interweaves the story of a mother and daughter's relationship. Natasha Lere's Perceptive English translation was notably published on the 12th anniversary of Bacca's death. Natasha, can you tell us a little about yourself? And I'm interested to learn how much you feel your editing and writing work complements your translation work.
2: So I studied English at university and I've been writing literary criticism for a very long time. And I'm an editor and I think it's particularly helpful to be an editor when you are a translator or in fact a writer of any kind. It really helps, I found, at the beginning of a career as a translator. I'm pretty sure that after a while a very experienced translator will develop excellent editing skills, but as one's beginning one's career, and I've only been translating for five years, it's really helpful to have these skills. A good editor is an absolutely brilliant asset, and it helps if you can be that editor, working alongside your actual editor, who in the case of the white dress was the absolutely fantastic Cecil Menon, who's the publisher of Le Pugitive. Writing skills in general are vital for a translator. It sounds completely mad to say it, but some translators are not very good writers, and it shows. Sometimes when a translation sounds flat, it's because the translator just has not been able to give it wings. You've
1: translated two of Legere's books. Did you know her previous work? Have you met her, and how involved is she in the act of translating?
2: We've never actually met, but we email each other and we built up a really nice relationship. Um, In fact, the original French version of Suite for Barbara Loden was the very first work of hers I'd ever read. I was blown about by it, desperate to translate it.
1: How important is the relationship between author and translator?
2: I think it really depends. Every book is different. Every author is different. Every translator is different. So I actually don't tend to be much in contact with my authors when I'm actually working on a book but it really matters to me that they like my work and my relationship with Natalie Leger, for example, is very warm and I wonder if it's because we both appreciate each other's work so much but it's not actually a working relationship at all because we don't work together but Mm. it's just a nice relationship, very very respectful and very generous.
1: Leger clearly emphasised with the performance artist Pippa Bakker and her savage murder How does translation unite people and increase our capacity to empathise with others?
2: I find it really ironic that we're living in a time when translation and translators are so much appreciated and valued more than ever before. And yet everywhere you look, borders and walls are going up between countries and people. Mm -hmm. There's a very toxic discourse about integration and otherness that's become increasingly widespread in the last few years. And Of course, I'm not saying that translation can on its own overcome this discourse of division and rejection, but it is a really important current, like a wave really, that's flowing in the other direction, that's powered by an ever-increasing urge to encounter the other, to learn from the richness of different perspectives and different cultures and different ways of seeing the world, all the different stories.
1: Does Backer's work actually need to be translated in a narrative form? Like any visual artist, it's there in the performative act, Which makes one ask, is all communication translation or indeed translatable?
2: Well, let's not forget the only way her work survives is in narrative form. Once a performance is over, the translation into image and text is all that's left. So all writing about art like translation can be seen as a form of recovery, like a way of giving new life to a non-verbal work, perhaps. But not always in a new historical or geographical context which is precisely what Leger's original text, La Robe Blanche, the original French title, does. It's a kind of, what you'd call in French, a mise à jour of Bacca's life and work, a way of keeping it present and alive. And I suppose in that sense, all writing can be seen as a form of translation, and all writing, including translation, plays this vital role.
1: Leger looks back at two past events, Bacca's performance and murder and her mother's divorce. In what ways does she make the connection with feminism today?
2: So throughout the trilogy that begins with Sweet for Barbara Loden and is followed by Exposition and then ends with the White Dress, Natalie Léger explores, among other things, the changing status of women. She doesn't flinch from acknowledging the complexity and contradictions of this evolution. And she also, interestingly and dangerously, looks at the complicity of women women in their subjugation. So as a kind of measure of the subtlety of this exploration, I'm repeatedly amazed by the different ways women and men read Sweet for Barbara Loden. Some see it as a book about the difficulty of writing. Some read it as an exploration of the ambiguous motherhood and maternal love. And some focus on Loden's urge to passivity as an elliptical strategy for avoiding male power. And these are the themes that come up time and again throughout Lege's trilogy. Her writing powerfully describes the push and pull of women's emancipation in history with all its complexities and blind alleys. Her relationship with her mother is pivotal to this exploration. It comes out in her frustration and empathy for her mother's sadness and powerlessness. I think in the end, the trilogy is a resonating declaration of love for her mother.
1: Leger interweaves personal and political to terrific effect as she examines the misogyny that surrounded Becker's murder and her own father's mistreatment of her mother. When it comes to family, Leger blurs the line between fiction and fact and frequently digresses. A translator is faced by singular challenges when translating literature, in terms of fidelity to the original, linguistic content and the author's meaning. What were the particular issues and challenges you had to deal with when translating The White Dress?
2: Legeau's prose is incredibly dense, sometimes incredibly challenging, layered with meaning and illusion, it's implicit, it's explicit. Sometimes the French is so compact and condensed, you could spend hours excavating the different levels of meaning in a single page. She, her writing sort of reminds me of Virginia Woolf's prose. It's really poetic, it's dense with meaning. She pays enormous attention to the way a sentence hangs, to its rhythm and its sound. As a translator, you don't want to lose any of that. And that means sometimes poring over a single sentence or going back to it days or even weeks until you feel like you've got it. It's the most difficult, but it's incredibly satisfying work.
1: In your view, what makes a good translator? And how can translation change perceptions of our world?
2: Well, it definitely helps to have a good knowledge of the original source language, although there are some fine translations who don't. translators sorry, who don't. You need to be a good writer in the destination language with an ear for different registers and voices. You need excellent research skills, particularly when translating nonfiction. You need an eagle eye to keep track of the recurring phrases and ideas in the book. I have to admit that surprisingly often I've had to alert an editor to problems in the original text that should have been picked up when the book was originally published. And as for translation, how it changes our perception of the world, well, there's magic in language. Translation isn't simply a question of transposing words and transferring meaning. Language lives and breathes, it grows and it changes, it imposes meaning as well as revealing it. If you can crack it open, there's a secret at the heart of it. Translation's a way of understanding other people, other places, other societies, other people's stories. But it's also a way of understanding our own. It gives a new perspective on the place we call home. It's important not to forget that. Sometimes it's only by leaving home that you can see it properly, and that goes for language, too. English is, in a way, my home, but it's through living half my life in French that I've come to see it afresh. Some people feel they lose their language when they move to another country in another language, but it's been the opposite for me. It's really refreshed my relationship with my mother tongue.
1: Do you need to have an affinity with the subject before agreeing to translate?
2: No. (laughs) I have translated work by Georges Bataille, I wouldn't say I had any affinity with his work at all. Uh, but it does help to fall in love with what you're translating on the level of language as well as plot or theme. It's when it becomes really exciting. And when I'm super deeply involved in a translation, I'll, be, I'll work all night if I have to. And I can hardly bear to waste time sleeping. Usually that passion is on the level of the language as much as the story, I find. What are you working on next? I'm just finishing off translating the book by Vanessa Springora called Le Consentement, which was uh, which she wrote about her relationship with the writer Gabriel Matzneff when she was 15 and he was 50. It caused a huge scandal when it was published at the beginning of this year in France. It really exposed how sexual mores in France have changed in the last 30 years, and the complacency of the literary elite was revealed in pretty shocking ugliness.
1: And um, is it coming out uh, next year
2: here? I think the plan is for it to come out before the end of the year, but obviously with COVID and everything, all the schedules have changed. And I don't know where exactly when it's going to be coming out. I think it was supposed to be coming out in the autumn.
1: And do you hope to be um,
2: translating any more of Ledger's Le- work? I would love to translate. There is the possibility of uh, forthcoming another book, and uh, which I Hopefully, will be translated, but nothing's decided yet.
1: Uh, just because I don't know, has she got anything else out in French already? She's tra-
2: she's written some nonfiction, which um, definitely is waiting to be translated. Some very poetic essays about um, very poetic essay about uh, Beckett, and another book about her father, I think, or her husband. I can't remember. Um, I haven't read it yet, but it has just come out
1: could you end with a short reading from
2: The White Dress? We're walking from our old house to the headland. Instantly we're assaulted by the smell of pink oleander and cypress mingled with the odour of sun cream, hot sand and beignet from further down the beach. The lingering, sickly sweet perfume of baking hot late afternoons in the shadow of the pines. But I mustn't give in, I have to resist the pernicious nostalgia of those hours steeped in smells and light. My mother says it's about time. The end of a life is no bigger than a pocket handkerchief. You keep bumping into the border, whichever way you turn, she says. She knows it will be sad, but unremarkable. Not to anticipate any great drama, the banality of grief, the conscientious act of mourning. Again, she says, I've thought a lot about it. Our two subjects are exactly the same, so you can help me, support me, assist me in my project. At the same time as you're pursuing yours, because, she says, the violence is the same, great or small, whatever form it takes. The fight to denounce it, wherever you are, is the same. You can act in my name. You can speak for me. You can, she clears her throat, defend me or even avenge me. I don't recognise my mother in these concise formulations that are nothing like the way she usually speaks. And I wonder where this voice is coming from but speaking over the hissing of the sea, as the waves like little pets come and lap at our feet. I've taken off her shoes and we're walking along the shore exactly where as a child, I thought about it in brief bursts as I listened to the sound of the sea, I learned to swim. And the memory of the lapping waves, the memory of the grey, delicately turning to sea green, coincides amazingly with the actual sight of it, the same gentle backwash, the same warmth, even as my body wrestles vainly with the inevitable sense of dislocation. I wonder where that unfamiliar voice has come from. And walking beside her, I speculate about it without any bitterness, either towards her or towards whatever had prompted in her such an absurd notion, because I too have hidden away many words inside myself. We aren't far from the end of the beach where we'll get rid of the sand and our wet socks, and then I shall answer her. She leans a little more heavily on my arm and whispers in a voice that's more familiar. You have no idea what happened. No one does. The lying and the injustice, the humiliation. You never really knew, did you? When we get to the far end of the beach, my mother sits down on a low wall in front of a stall selling venue. I squat down in front of her to brush the sand from her feet and she doesn't try to stop me because she knows it will make it easier for me to answer her. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet I feel as if the faint background of voices and cries, strangely muffled by the end of the afternoon, is protecting me, that the only thing to fear would be using the wrong words, words with too much intention, or even, for once, finding the right ones. But instead, it must be because of the sand, the socks, and the tedium. Instead, I find myself talking about Jean Deleuze. I tell her about the yoke of the archetypal bourgeois daddy mummy that subjugates, as Deleuze puts it so well, that subjugates European humanity. What I'm looking for has nothing to do with. I tugged a sock over her heel. Family history, nothing, truly nothing. But it's still damp, it's resisting. Nothing could be further from my concerns than that kind of family history, even if it doesn't escape me that I'm quite capable of saying exactly the opposite and declaring for purely rhetorical purposes that actually everything comes down to family history now my mother is staring at me as if it weren't her foot at all as if i were packing a suitcase or nailing down a coffin anyway i say i'm done with family history i briskly lace up her little canvas shoe And for one thing, quite apart from the fact that it's pretty much a full-time job to avenge someone, let me tell you for the last time, our two subjects are not the same. And, I add, standing up, catching my breath, we're ready to go. As it happens, nor are our wounds and regrets. It's not as if it matters to me whether or not my own suffering is unique, but come on. You see what I mean? She stands up and looks into the distance, with the dreamlike stillness of Bob Beeman standing at the end of the run-up about to smash the world record for the long jump. Slight twist of the hip, the sense of absence, of being a foreign body in the midst of the enormous crowd surrounding him. Like him, she's gathering herself, focusing. Then she says, Why do you think you write, if it's not to bring about justice? For a long time, the only things I knew about her were her dress and her name. All the names she heard Giuseppina, Pippa, Eva. I found out she changed name depending on the day. Who knows if it was in order better to conceal herself or to expose herself, if it was in order to escape herself or to understand herself. Five names, according to some, though I only know of three Pippa Bacca. I repeat this series of plosives, that has nothing to do with any actual body. have to start with a name, the so-called proper name. Keep repeating it without understanding anything. When she took it, perhaps it was with the intention of marking the threshold of fiction, just as Melville does with majestic nonchalance at the beginning of Moby Dick. Call me Pippa. Her name was Pippa Backer. She died when she was 33. All the things she took with her, her true like a bride from the olden days, a silk fan, a gold purse, a book of hours, an otter-fur coat, girdles of iridescent, emerald-coloured Himalayan monal feathers, an Indian quilt, a little black jacquard cape, her troopso, or rather her gear, like a soldier going off to war. She carried thirty-five kilos of stuff with her across Europe, not to mention the infernally heavy burden of her dreams. She took a video camera, a copper basin, a bottle of oil, a charger, a memory card, a bar of soap, a towel, a flannel, three pairs of knickers, sewing kit, a bottle of activated charcoal soap, nail clippers, two number thirteen crochet hooks, a cable, two pairs of tights, and a razor, two t shirts, a pair of scissors, wire, and a reel of red thread. Wearing her wedding dress, she hitchhiked the entire length of the journey, the motorway at full tilt from Milan, hemmed inside the lorry's muffled reverberations. In what records remain of this journey, we see her leaning over the tiny screen of her video camera. We see her framed in the rear view mirror. She films the interlocking images of window, mirror, reflections, the still life of the driver's hands on the steering wheel, and a long tracking shot of a featureless Europe flattened against the glass.
1: Thank you very much for your time and for giving us an invaluable insight into Natalie Leger's The White Dress.
0: Thank you very much for that, Natasha. It will now be read in French by Marie-Laure Aris instead of the author, who is not available via the
3: internet. C'était au cours de la promenade que nous faisions du côté de notre ancienne maison au Cap. Tout de suite, on entendait l'heure d'heure des lauriers roses et des cyprès qui se mêlaient plus bas, vers les plages, à celles de l'huile solaire, du sable et des beignets, relant douceâtre des fins d'après-midi surchauffés, à l'ombre des pins. Ici, se retenir... Éviter la nostalgie pernicieuse de ces heures saturées de parfums et de lumières. Ma mère a dit qu'il était temps. La fin d'une vie est grande comme un mouchoir de poche. On se cogne à tous ses bords, a-t-elle dit. Elle sait que ce sera plaintif, banal. Ne pas s'attendre à de grands drames. L'ordinaire du griffe, le dépôt scrupuleux de la plainte, elle dit encore. J'ai bien réfléchi, nos deux sujets n'en font qu'un. Tu peux donc m'aider, me soutenir, m'accompagner dans mon projet tout en poursuivant le tien. Car, dit-elle, la violence est une, petite ou grande, quelles qu'en soient les formes. Se battre pour la dénoncer, ici ou là, c'est pareil. Tu peux agir pour moi, tu peux parler pour moi, tu peux, elle déglutit, me défendre et même me venger. Je n'ai pas reconnu ma mère dans ces formulations concises, qui n'étaient pas dans, les, dans ses habitudes. Et je me suis demandé d'où venait la voix qui parlait là, sur fond de chuintement maritime, tandis que les vagues, petites comme des animaux de compagnie, venaient nous lécher les pieds, comme on dit. Je lui avais retiré ses chaussettes, et nous marchions sur le rivage. Précisément là, où, enfant, j'y pensais par brefs coups de son en l'écoutant, J'avais appris à nager, et le souvenir du clapot, d'alors, le souvenir de ce gris virant délicatement au glauque, coïncidait merveilleusement avec son actualité. Même remous, très doux, même tièdeur, pendant que le corps, ou ce qui en tient lieu, cherche vainement à coordonner sa dislocation naturelle. Je me suis demandé d'où venait cette voix étrangère, et tout en marchant à ses côtés, je me demandais sans amertume ni à son égard, ni à l'égard de ce qui avait, lui avait soufflé pareille absurdité, car moi-même, j'abrite bien des paroles, sans parler des arriere pensees qui ne sont pas les miennes. « Bientôt, nous arriverons au bout du rivage. Il faudra en finir avec le sable et les chaussettes humides, et je lui répondrai. » Elle s'appuie un peu plus à mon bras et murmure d'une voix que je reconnais mieux. Tu ne sais pas ce que c'est, ce qui s'est passé. Personne, le mensonge et l'injustice, l'humiliation. Tu ne l'as jamais vraiment su, n'est-ce pas Accroupi devant elle, je nettoie le sable de ses pieds, et elle me laisse faire, car elle sait que cela me permettra plus facilement de lui répondre. Bien qu'il n'y ait aucune crainte à avoir, j'ai pourtant le sentiment le fond de voix et les cris toujours étrangement assourdis par la fin de l'après-midi me protège. Aucune crainte sinon celle de ne pas trouver le mot exact le mot sans excès d'intention pour une fois le trouver au lieu de ça, c'est sans doute à cause du sable, des chaussettes et de l'ennui. Au lieu de ça, je lui parle de Gilles Deleuze je lui parle du joug typiquement bourgeois du papa et de maman qui écrase, je le disais très justement, Deleuze qui écrase l'humanité européenne. Ce que je cherche, moi, n'a rien à voir avec. Je parviens à faire passer la chaussette autour du talon. Une affaire de famille, rien, à vrai dire rien, mais c'est encore humide, ça résiste. Rien n'est plus éloigné de mes préoccupations que ces affaires de famille, même si... Même s'il ne m'échappe pas ce que je pourrais soutenir l'inverse et déclarer à des fins, pour ainsi dire purement oratoire, que tout n'est qu'une affaire de famille. Ici, ma mère me regarde comme s'il s'agissait, ne s'agissait pas de son propre pied, comme si j'étais en train de, fa- de faire ma valise et de clouer un cercueil. Car les affaires de famille, dis-je, j'en ai ma claque. Je joue avec énergie les lacets avec de sa petite chaussure de toile. Et d'une, sans compter que c'est presque un boulot à plein de temps de venger qui que ce soit. Alors je te le dis, une fois pour toutes, nos deux sujets n'en font qu'un. Et de deux, je me redresse un peu essoufflée. Nous sommes prêtes à repartir. J'ajoute, pas plus d'ailleurs que nos chaussures et nos regrets. Non pas que je tienne à l'originalité de ma souffrance, mais enfin tu vois ce que je veux dire. Elle s'est levée. Elle regarde au loin avec la même immobilité rêveuse que Bob Beeman au bord de la piste d'élan, s'apprêtant sans le savoir à pulvériser le record du monde du saut en longueur, le léger déhanchement, l'air absent, un corps étranger au milieu de l'énorme circonférence de la foule. Comme lui, elle se ramasse, se condense et elle y va. Pour toi, pourquoi crois-tu que tu écrives si ce n'est pour rendre justice longtemps je n'ai connu d'elle que sa robe et son nom. Tous ces noms qu'elle avait, Giuseppina, Pippa, Eva, elle en changeait tous les jours. C'est ce que j'ai appris. Et on ne sait pas si c'était pour mieux se dissimuler ou pour mieux s'exposer. Si c'était pour fuir, se fuir, on peut mieux se comprendre. Cinq, disent certains, je n'en connais que trois. Avec un nom, rien ne s'éclaire jamais. Tout devient au contraire plus opaque en pressant la honte, les humiliations, les ruses du consentement, mais aussi l'adhésion satisfaite à chacun de ces syllabes de plomb, agencées comme par hasard et n'obéissant qu'à d'obscures, vénérables et menaçantes nécessité généalogique. Le mien, par exemple, n'a jamais adhéré à celle que j'étais ou croyais être. Et réciproquement, puis on finit par se faire une raison, je me souviens D'un écrivain disant, quand on écrit, on a intérêt à savoir comment on s'appelle. Vague menace. Ainsi, je n'écrirai jamais. Ma seule chance, c'était d'avoir mal compris. Peut-être s'agiss- s'agissait-il plutôt de savoir comment une autre s'appelle. Pipa Baka. je répète cette série d'explosives qui collent mal à mon corps. Il faut partir de ce nom qu'on dit propre. Répéter encore sans rien comprendre. En l'apprenant, elle avait peut-être voulu marquer le seuil de la fiction, comme Melville, au début de Moby Dick, l'a fait avec cette désinvolture majestueusement aggravée par son traducteur. Je m'appelle Pipa Mettons. Elle s'appelle Pipa Bacca. Elle est morte à 33 ans. Tout ce qu'elle emporte, sont trousseau comme une mariée des temps anciens, un éventail de soie, une aumônière d'or, un livre d'heures, un manteau de loutre des bandes de l'ophophore au reflet d'émeraude, une contrepointe d'Indienne, une cape en orléans noir, son trousseau, ou plutôt son bardin, comme un soldat en guerre. Elle emporte 35 kilos d'objets à travers l'Europe. Et ne parlons pas du poids de ses rêves qui pèsent sacrément lourd. Elle emporte une caméra, une bassine de cuivre, une bouteille d'huile, un chargeur, une carte mémoire, un savon, une serviette, un gant de toilette, trois culottes, un nécessaire à couture, une bouteille de lessive à la cendre, un coupe ongles deux crochets numéro 13, un câble, deux collants, une gomme, deux t-shirts, une paire de ciseaux, du fil de fer, une pelote de fil rouge. Avant de partir, sa mère et ses seuls lui avaient demandé s'il était bien raisonnable de se lancer sur les routes d'Europe en robe de mariée. Mais Pipa était paisible et déterminée. Depuis plus d'un an, elle avait tout préparé. Les routes, les étapes, les événements. Vêtue de sa robe de noces, elle a fait d'autostop tout au long du voyage. L'autoroute a toute allure depuis mille ans. L'enfermement dans l'épaisse rumeur des camions. Sur les archives qui restent de ce voyage, on la voit qui se penche sur l'écran minuscule de sa caméra. On la voit qui se cadre dans le rétroviseur fait des effets d'emboîtement, vitre, miroir, reflet, puis nature morte des mains du chauffeur sur le volant, puis long travelling sur l'Europe fade qui s'aplatit le long de la vitre.
0: The White Dress is published by Les Fugitives and is available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. To buy The White Dress from your local independent bookseller you can find your nearest store by visiting booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search This podcast is brought to you by Book Blast. For more bookishness between episodes visit online journal The Book Blast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such theme tune composer Edward Campbell, interviewer Lucy Popescu, reader marie Aris and translator Natasha Leira for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Book Blast podcast.